Hello, and welcome to another episode of Nostalgic Mystery Radio. I'm your host, Stevie Kay, and it's my honor to bring you the radio shows of yesteryear. For today's episode, I bring you part two to Agatha Christie's Want to Buckle My Shoe. So sit back and relax, and I hope you enjoy this Nostalgic Mystery Radio. Thank you for listening. John Moffat as Hercule Poirot and Philip Jackson as Chief Inspector Jap in Agatha Christie's One, Two, Buckle My Shoe. Hercule Poirot? It's a washout, the whole thing. What do you mean, my friend? Morley committed suicide, and we've got the motive. Which is? I've just had the doctor's report on Amberiotis. He died from an overdose of adrenaline and Novocaine. It acted on his heart and he collapsed. So, when he said he was too ill to see you... He was practically at death's door. Hmm. And adrenaline and Novocaine are what dentists inject as a local anaesthetic. It would take some time to have its full effect. After Amberiotis left, Morley obviously realised he'd given him an overdose, couldn't face the consequences and shot himself. With a pistol his sister says he did not possess. Relatives don't know everything. You'd be surprised at things they don't know. That is true. Would you like me to drop round? I should be delighted, my dear Jap. Or you better have a large scotch ready for me. <laughs> I shall put it into your hand the moment you arrive. Cheers. Ah, so, there you are. A perfectly lucid explanation for the whole thing. I'm afraid it does not satisfy me, my friend. Patients have been known to react unfavorably to a local anesthetic, but the person who administers the drug does not usually carry his concern so far as to kill himself. After all, it is hardly a criminal matter. Mm, But it wouldn't do Morley's reputation much good, would it? In fact, it would almost certainly ruin him. Nobody's going to go to a dentist who's likely to squirt lethal doses of poison into you just because he happens to be a bit absent-minded. Even so... Ah, I know you, old boy. Once you've got your teeth into a case of murder, you don't want to let go. It's my fault, I admit, for setting you on the track. What kind of man was he, this Amberiotis? Oh, he wasn't a nice man by any means. Started off as a little hotel keeper in Greece, and then he mixed himself up in politics. Some kind of espionage work in Germany and France. Got himself involved in a very murky business out in India last year. But no one was able to prove anything against him. I suspect that his real game was blackmail. He might even have been blackmailing Morley, for all I know. But I'm sure it was the way I said it was. Sorry to cheat you out of a juicy little murder. But I was not at all happy. And there were many aspects of the case that puzzled me. In the words of the nursery rhyme, I began picking up sticks. What was the role of Miss Neville's boyfriend, Frank Carter? Why had that wild-looking young American, Howard Rakes, gone off before his appointment with Mr. Riley? And there was another name in Riley's appointment book, a retired civil servant called Barnes, who lived near Ealing Broadway. Monsieur Hercule Poirot. I am honoured. Oh, monsieur. Please, take a seat. Thank you. 
I can guess what brings you here. That very curious business at 58 Queen Charlotte Street. You are quite right, Mr. Barnes. But how did I've you... I've been retired from the Home Office for some time now, but I know very well that in any hush-hush business, it's far better not to use the police. No need to draw attention to it all. But why should you suppose this is a hush-hush business? Isn't it? Well, if it isn't, it ought to be. In secret service work, it's not the little fry you want, it's the big boys at the top. But to get them, you've got to be careful not to alarm the little fry. It seems to me, Mr. Barnes, that you know rather more about this than I do. Oh, I know nothing about it at all. I'm simply putting two and two together. One of those two being... Ambriotis. I was sitting opposite him in the waiting room for a minute or two. He didn't know me. I was always an insignificant chap. But I knew him, and I could guess what he was up to. And what was that, Mr. Barnes? What must be so heartbreaking to your average foreign agent is that this country is so hard to damage. We really are quite remarkably solvent, which is more than can be said for most of the other countries in Europe. And you can't even begin to play merry hell with our financial institutions so long as you've got men like Alastair Blunt at the helm. That's why they've made up their minds that Blunt must go. You believe that he was the intended victim? It's been tried before. The method, I mean. Chancellor of the Exchequer died on the operating table. A miscalculation on the part of the anaesthetist, they said. The head of Sterling Industries was run down by a car and killed. Anxious mother in a hurry to get to a sick child, according to the inquest. But that anaesthetist is now set up on his own with a first-class research laboratory. And the anxious mother has a big house in the country. And her daughter has a pony to ride. And Mr. Molly Wouldn't join in their dirty little racket. So he had to go. And who, my friend, are they... In this case, I would think it was probably Morley's partner, Mr. Riley. And where does Amberiotis come into this? Well, he was playing a double game, I fancy. It would have been easy enough for Riley to have given him an overdose. So, if your ideas are correct, what will happen next? They'll have to have another go at Blunt. But they'll be on their guard this time. Uh, tell the police... Uh, to look out for the respectable, ordinary people, the old servants, the chemist's assistant who makes up the medicine, the wine merchant who sells him his port. Getting blunt out of the way is worth millions, and it's wonderful what people will do for a few thousand a year, tax-free. Hello, Poirot. What brings you here so early in the morning? I was wondering whether you intended to call Miss Sainsbury Seal as a witness at the inquest. Well, I don't think so. She hasn't really got anything to contribute. Mm, perhaps it's just as well. Why do you say that? Because I thought I would call in to see her at the Glengarry Court yesterday evening. Now, you might be interested to know that she walked out of the hotel just before dinner on the day we paid her a visit, and she did not come back. You mean she's hooked it? Oh, that is a possible explanation... Though it is strange that she should choose to disappear so soon after seeing us. Well, it is a bit odd, I admit, but there's nothing at all fishy about her. I cable Calcutta, and she's perfectly genuine and respectable. Everything confirms the account of herself she gave to us. She's well known to all the missions. As she said, she was an actress of sorts and gave elocution lessons. In fact, what I'd call a terrible woman. But certainly not the type to get mixed up in murder. So why did she walk out of her hotel? Perhaps she just got fed up with the place. But her luggage is still there. She took nothing with her. Hmm. Perhaps we ought to give her the once-over. You never know. Might tell us something.
A curiously random collection of shoes, serviceable Oxfords, moccasins, meretricious glassy fancy slippers, mm. plain black evening shoes, a size smaller than the others. But there's no sign of the patent leather ones with the buckles that she was wearing on the morning Molly was killed. She was obviously wearing them when she slipped out. Hmm. Underclothing. Oh, she obviously believed in wearing wool next to the skin. Stockings, ten inch. Mm, cheap, shiny silk. Price probably two and eleven. You're not valuing for probate, old boy. Two letters here from India. Receipts from charitable institutions. No bills. Very estimable character, Miss Sainsbury Seal. But very little taste in dress. <laughs> she probably thought dress too worldly. There's a letter here from some people in Hampstead. They might know something about her. They had been neighbours of hers in India, but had not seen her for over a month and had no idea what might have become of her. She had, it seemed, simply disappeared into space. But there was a stick I had not picked up. Howard Rakes, the dangerous-looking young man who had prowled so restlessly round Mr. Morley's waiting room. I found him having breakfast at the Hoban Palace Hotel. What the hell do you want? You uh, permit that I take a seat? You seem to have taken it. You do not remember me, Mr. Rakes? Never set eyes on you in my life. Oh, yes. We were together for at least five minutes in Mr. Molly's waiting room. So what are you after? Here is my card. Yes, I've heard of you. Most people have. So let's get to the point. What are you doing here? I wanted to see you, to assuage my curiosity. And I suppose you were just assuaging your curiosity at the dentist the other day. You seem to overlook the most ordinary reason for being in a dentist's waiting room, which is to have one's teeth attended to. <laughs> You'll excuse me if I say I don't believe you. <laughs> As you wish. And what were you doing there? Waiting to have my teeth attended to. You had perhaps the toothache? A very astute piece of deduction. But all the same, you went away without having your teeth attended to. Look, what the hell's the point of all this? You were there to keep an eye on Alistair Blunt. Well, nothing happened to him. So what are you trying to prove? Where did you go when you went so abruptly out of the waiting room? Into the street, of course. But nobody saw you leave the house. Does that matter? It might. Somebody died in that house not long afterwards. Uh, that dentist fellow. Yes, Mr. Rex. That dentist fellow. Can you prove that you left the house when you said you did? I suppose Blunt put you up to this. You will pardon me, but it seems an obsession with you, this harping on Mr. Blunt. I am not employed by him. I have never been employed by him. I am concerned only with the death of an honest man who did good work in his chosen profession. I don't believe you. Now, you may be a clever little man, but you can't save Blunt. He's got to go and everything he stands for. The old corrupt system of finance, the evil network of bankers all over the world. The slate has to be wiped clean so that we can begin again. I see, Mr. Rakes, that you are an idealist. And what if I am? Too much of an idealist to care about the 
death of a dentist. What does the death of a miserable little dentist matter? But it mattered to me, and it mattered to Molly's secretary, Gladys Neville. I'm so sorry to worry you like this. Really, I don't know how I had the courage to come. A cup of tea made in miraculously short time by the excellent Georges soon restored her self-confidence. You see, Monsieur Poirot, it all came as such a terrible shock. The things that were said at the inquest, I mean. It upset me a great deal. I'm sure it must have done. I felt that somebody had to go with Miss Morley, you see. That was very kind of you. But it's all wrong, Monsieur Poirot. What is wrong, mademoiselle? It couldn't have happened the way they said it did. Giving a patient an overdose by injecting the gum. Why do you think that? Practitioners get so into the habit of giving the regulation amount that they do it automatically. It is standardised, you see. They couldn't just give a massive overdose by accident. Mm, that is what I thought myself. But why did you not ask to be allowed to make this observation in the coroner's court? Because I, I was afraid of making things worse. It might suggest that Mr Morley had done it deliberately. That's why I've come to you, Monsieur Poirot, because with you it wouldn't be official in any way. I would like to know a little more about that telegram you received, saying that your aunt was ill. I don't know what to think. You see, it must have been sent by someone who knew all about me and my aunt, where she was living and everything. Frank, you know my fiancé, got quite angry about it. He accused me of wanting to go off for the day with somebody else. He knew nothing about it when he came to the surgery? No. And what made it worse, he wanted to tell me about his new job. Ten pounds a week. And I think he wanted Mr Morley to know as well, because he'd been very hurt at the way Mr Morley didn't approve of him. He thought he was trying to influence me against him. Which was true, was it not? Well, yes, it was. Frank isn't exactly what you'd call steady, but it will be different now. I should like to meet this young man of yours. I should love you to meet him, Monsieur Poirot, but just at present, Sundays is only day free. He's away in the country all week, you see. And what is this new job of his? Well, I don't know exactly. I think he said something about some government department. I have to send letters to Frank's London address and they get forwarded. That is a little odd, is it not? Well, I thought so, but Frank says it is often done nowadays. Tomorrow is Sunday, n'est-ce pas? Perhaps you could both give me the pleasure of lunching with me at the Leicester Square Corner House. I should like to discuss this sad business with you both. Well, I had no idea we were to have the honour of lunching with you, Mr Poirot. It was only arranged yesterday. Miss Never is very upset by the circumstances of Mr Morley's death, and I wondered if oh, you... Oh, Morley! I'm sick of everyone going on about Morley. But he left me a hundred pounds. I got a letter about it only last well, night. Was that all? After you slaving away there while he pocketed all the fat fees? But he paid me very well. And he did his best to get you to give me the push. I just wish I'd had the chance to tell him what I thought of him. And you actually went round on the morning of his death to do just that, did you not? No. I wanted to see Gladys. But they told you she was away? Yes. That made me suspicious, so I said I'd wait and see Morley. I wanted to tell him that I'd landed a good job, and it was time Gladys handed in her notice. But you did not actually see him? No. I got tired of waiting about in that dingy mausoleum. At what time did you leave? I can't remember. What time did you arrive, then? I don't know. Soon after 12, I imagine. And you stayed for how long? Uh, half an hour or longer? I don't know. 
I'm not the sort who's always watching the clock. Was there anyone else in the waiting room while you were there? Mm, well, there was a fat, oily-looking foreign bloke. But he went up to Morley's surgery. I must have left not long after that. The place was beginning to get on my nerves. Now, Miss Neville tells me that you have been very fortunate in finding a new job. The pay's good. Ten pounds a week. Shows I can pull it off when I set my mind to it. And is it interesting work? Yes. Uh, talking of jobs, I've always wondered how you private detectives earn your living. I suppose it's more the divorce stuff than Sherlock Holmes nowadays. I do not concern myself with divorce. Monsieur Poirot doesn't have to worry about that sort of thing. Mr. Morley always used to say you're right at the top of the tree. The sort of person royalty calls in, or the home office. Isn't that right, Monsieur Poirot? Tell me, my friend, did you ever manage to trace that telegram that was sent to Gladys Neville? You don't give up, do you, old cock? As a matter of fact, we did. The aunt lives at Earlsford in Somerset, and the telegram was handed in at Earlsford, London SW6. Quite clever, really. So that if the recipient happened to glance at where the telegram was handed in, it would look genuine. Mm. Uh-huh. There are signs of brains in this business. So you're still convinced it's a case of murder? Well, let us say I am not satisfied. Well, you may not be, Poirot, but the assistant commissioner is. And is he satisfied with the disappearing lady? The case of the vanishing seal? No, I'm still working on that. Are you suggesting she's been murdered too? It is certainly a possibility. Don't you worry. We'll find her all right. Woolen underwear and all. We've published a description of her in the press and we're roping in the BBC. That ought to do the trick. Hercule Poirot? This is Jane Oliveira, Mr Alistair Blunt's niece. Yes, Miss Oliveira? Could you come to the Gothic house, please? There's something we feel you ought to know. Certainly. At what time? At 6.30, please. I will be there. I hope I'm not interrupting your work. Not at all. I was expecting you to call me. It's very good of you to come, Monsieur Poirot. You've met Miss Oliveira, I understand. It's about that missing woman we've been reading about in the paper. Miss Sainsbury-Seal? Yes. Shall I tell him or will you, Uncle Alistair? My dear, it's your story. It mayn't be important in the least, but I thought you ought to know. Please tell me, mademoiselle. It happened when Uncle Alistair went to the dentist's. Not this last time, but about six weeks ago. I went with him in the roll so that he could take me on to some friends in Regent's Park. We stopped outside the dentist's and a woman appeared at the door. Can you describe her, mademoiselle? She was middle-aged with funny hair and rather untidy, arty clothes. She made a beeline for Uncle Alistair and said, Oh, Mr. Blunt, you don't remember me, I'm sure... Well, of course, I could see from Uncle's face that he didn't remember her in the slightest. I never do. People are always saying it. He put on his special face, kind of polite and make-believe. It wouldn't deceive a baby. He said in a totally unconvincing voice, Oh, uh, of course. And this dreadful woman said, I was a great friend of your wife's, you know. They usually say that. And it always ends the same way, a subscription to some good cause or other. I got off this time with five pounds to the Zanara missions or something of that sort. Had she really known your wife? Well, her interest in the Zanara missions made me think she must have been in India. We were there about ten years ago. 
But of course she couldn't have been a great friend or I'd have known about it. Probably met my wife at a reception. I don't believe she'd ever met Aunt Rebecca at all. I think it was just an excuse to get a subscription out of you. Did she mention her name? Oh, yes. She said she was Miss Sainsbury Seal. And did she try to follow up this meeting in any way? No. I'd actually forgotten all about her until Jane spotted her name in the paper. Well, I thought Monsieur Poirot ought to be told. I am most obliged, mademoiselle. And now I will take up no more of your time, Mr. Blunt. I know you're a busy man. Goodbye, Monsieur Poirot. Goodbye. I'll come down with you, Monsieur Poirot. Just a minute. Come in here, will you? There is something else, mademoiselle. What did you mean on the telephone when you said you'd been expecting me to call? Simply that, mademoiselle. You mean you knew I'd ring you up about that scatty woman? Oh, that was only a pretext. All right, Mr. Noel. Why the hell should I ring you up? Why should you give this information about Miss Sainsbury Seal to me instead of Scotland Yard, huh? What you really want to find out is why I paid a visit to the Hoban Park Hotel. I haven't the least idea what you're going on about. I am talking about Mr. Howard Rakes. Who's he? Oh, oh Miss Oliveira, do not play the silly games with me. That first time Chief Inspector Jap and I came here, you thought that something had happened to your uncle. Well, he's the kind of man that some things happen to. Chief Inspector Shap told you that a certain dentist, Mr. Morley, had been shot, and you replied strangely. You said, that's absurd. Did I? Well, that was rather absurd of me, wasn't it? You had expected, or perhaps you had feared, that something might happen at Mr. Morley's, that your uncle was in danger. But if so, you knew something that we did not know. I reflected on the people who had been in the waiting room that day, and I seized at once on the one person who might have a connection with you, the young American Howard Rakes, and so I went to see him. He is a dangerous and attractive young man. He is, isn't he? Oh, there's no point in trying to string you along, Monsieur Poirot. I'm just crazy about him. We met in college. My mother dragged me over to England just to get me away from him. Well, it was partly that. She also hoped that Uncle Alistair might get fond of me and leave me all his money when he dies. Perhaps you could tell me a little about your family, mademoiselle. It's really very simple. Mother is Uncle Alistair's niece by marriage. Her mother was Rebecca Arnhold's sister, which makes him my great-uncle-in-law, although, of course, he was years younger than Aunt Rebecca. And so he acquired an entire American family. He hasn't got any relatives of his own, so Mother doesn't see why we shouldn't be his residuary legatees. But I do not imagine that Mr. Howard Rakes greatly approves of inherited wealth. He abominates everything Uncle Alistair stands for, and I can understand that, of course. I'm fond of Uncle, but he's so stodgy, so British. Why did Howard Rakes make that appointment at Queen Charlotte Street? Because I wanted him to meet Uncle Alistair. I hoped they might just happen to run into one another. I felt that if Howard could only see him, see what a kindly, unassuming person he was, he might feel differently. But having made the arrangement, you were afraid? Yes. Because sometimes Howard gets carried away. So carried away that he might have killed the wrong person? 
Was the shot that killed Morley really intended for your uncle, mademoiselle? Is that why you said it was absurd? Of course not. This is ridiculous. Howard couldn't possibly do a thing like that. Could he not? Then why are you trembling? Is it because I may possibly be right? Damn it all, Poirot. That Sainsbury seal woman's got to be somewhere. If she drowned herself, for instance, the body would have come ashore by now. Not if a weight was attached to her body and it was thrown into the Thames. From a cellar in Limehouse, I suppose. You're talking like a thriller by a lady novelist. I know, I know. I blush when I say these things. And she was done to death, I suppose, by an international gang of crooks. And I have been told lately that such things happen. Who told you? Uh, Mr. Reginald Barnes of Castle Garden Road in Ealing. Well, he might know. He dealt with the alien department when he was in the home office. But have you received no new information about her? Oh, I wouldn't say that. We've discovered that she came over here from India on the same boat as Amberiotis. And one of the waiters at the Savoy thought he saw them lunching together about a week before Amberiotis died. You mean there may have been some connection between them? No, I can't see that it's very likely. A missionary lady being mixed up in funny business. Did you know that Miss Sainsbury Seal claimed to be a close friend of the late Mrs. Alistair Blunt? Who said so? She said so. You mean that Amberiotis might have been using her to get money out of Blunt? Well, it does not seem very likely. All that she did was to approach him for a subscription to one of her missions. She's hardly the sort to get tangled up in international espionage. And nobody has seen her since the day she walked out of Glengarry Court. I wouldn't say that. Practically everybody seems to have seen her. She's been sighted on the Yorkshire Moors, and in a hotel in Liverpool, and on the beach at Ramsgate. My men have spent a lot of time following up all the reports and getting fleas in their ears from a number of perfectly respectable middle-aged ladies. And yet it cannot be a coincidence that she disappeared on the day of Molly's death. She didn't shoot him, if that's what you mean. Amberiotis saw him alive after she left. And I'm not for a second suggesting that she shot Molly, but... All the same... If you're right about Morley, and he really was murdered, then it's far more likely that he told her something which, although she didn't suspect it, gave a clue to his killer. If that's the case, she might have been deliberately got out of the way. But that suggests some big organisation is involved. Not the kind of thing you expect with the death of an ordinary dentist in Queen Charlotte Street. A big organisation. A concern to whom life is of no consequence who do not hesitate to kill to protect themselves. More than ever, I am convinced that this was no common crime. We are up against people who are playing for very high stakes, the fate of this country, perhaps. And who can tell when or where they will show their hand? In part two of Agatha Christie's One, Two, Buckle My Shoe, Hercule Poirot was played by John Moffat, Chief Inspector Jap by Philip Jackson, Alistair Blunt, Philip Franks, Mr. Barnes, Patrick Godfrey, Jane Oliveira, Amanda Waring, Howard Rakes, Robert Portal, Gladys Neville, Sophie Arnold, Frank Carter, Dominic Colchester. The music was composed by Tom Smale, one, two, Buckle My Shoe is dramatised for radio by Michael Bakewell 
and directed by Enid Williams. Mystery Radio presentation. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Please feel free to like and rate this podcast on your favorite app. Also, there's a Nostalgic Mystery Radio YouTube page for your perusal to subscribe to. You can contact me by emailing me at nostalgicmysteryradio at gmail.com. I hope you have a blessed day or evening. And again, thank you for listening.